1: Erlon, I will never forget it.
2: Ear Hustle, stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, part two of my conversation with interim Atlanta Police Chief Rodney Bryant. I
2: have to work at building trust and strength inside the community. I have to do that internally as well to make sure that the officers that are hired on that have come on to protect this city are comfortable in doing so.
1: That's later in the program. But first, we'll begin with this. As you just heard on NPR, at this time, the House is currently voting on a resolution that would remove Georgia Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committee assignments. Now, according to a tweet from Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, he wrote that he spoke to House Republican Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy about the issue and, quote, said it is clear there is no alternative to holding a floor vote. Now, in addressing the House, Oklahoma Republican Congressman Tom Cole suggested, yes, maybe an alternative measure was needed.
2: The matter we are faced with is bigger than any one individual member. It's about how we, as an institution, will continue to function in the future. I fear that if we open this particular Pandora's box, we will not like what happens next. I would strongly urge this House to consider an alternative course before
1: it's too late. But in Massachusetts Democrat Congressman Jim McGovern, well, he disagrees.
2: Congresswoman Green says this resolution could set a precedent for the future.
3: I hope it does. Because if this isn't the bottom, then I don't know what the hell
2: is. I hope we are setting a clear standard for what we will not tolerate. Anyone who suggests putting a bullet in the head of a member shouldn't serve on any committee, period.
1: While there's bipartisan support to condemn much of to condemn much of Representative Green's conspiracy theories, including QAnon and other baseless claims, majority of, Green, of Green's Republican congressional base do not support an outright removal from Congress. We'll have more later during all things considered. Now to our daily coronavirus news here in Georgia. Governor Brian Kemp says it will be a while before most Georgia teachers can get vaccinated.
0: It's a lot more logistically challenging than a flu vaccine, so it's going to take a while. And if people are waiting to go back to school to get the vaccine, even if we had everybody eligible right now, it's still going to take two or three months, so you're going to be, you know, almost into the summer break.
1: Governor Kemp was speaking outside a Brookhaven-Kroger vaccination clinic today. Now, the governor has consistently said demand for the vaccine in Georgia is higher than the supply. Kemp says Georgia's vaccine supply remains at about 154,000 doses a week for the next three weeks. There are still many in the first group, the 1A+, who have not been vaccinated. And as this is the number of COVID-19-related deaths continues to rise in Georgia. Now, yesterday, another 135 died from the virus. And to date, 12,772 Georgians have died due to the coronavirus 755,412 cases in total have been confirmed in Georgia. This goes way back to last year. And 50,685 have been hospitalized. And of those, 8,439 were ICU admissions. Now, as always, we get our information from the Georgia Department of Public Health. There's another factor in all of this as well, the rise in COVID-19 variants. As of Tuesday, the state reported there were 23 identified in the state. Coming up next, from Emory University, Dr. Mary Beth Sexton joins me to discuss risk and concerns about the variants. And you can trust her because she is a health official, not your Uncle Bob. This is Closer Look. Producer Grace Walker has been busy again with some new music bed music. Let me know how y'all like it. Grace, y'all don't understand. Grace really gets into this. She is the curator of our Closer Look music. She spends hours upon hours finding the right music for the right tone. Trust me. Let me know. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The first COVID-19 variant was detected in the U.K. late last year.
2: It looks pretty clear from the U.K. group that in fact the transmissibility of this mutant is more efficient than the transmissibility of the standard virus that we've been dealing with up to now. Namely, it just is, it's able to bind to the receptors on cells better and therefore is transmitted better. There's no indication at all that it increases the virulence, and by virulence I mean the ability to make you sick or kill you. It doesn't seem to make it more strong in that regard.
1: That was Dr. Anthony Fauci on a Facebook live stream in December. Now, other health experts, and they also said, look, the mutation of the coronavirus was expected and warned it would likely spread. And it did. And it does. Now, since the fall, scientists say three main strains have emerged in dozens of countries around the globe, including here in the U.S. Now, we know y'all have a lot of questions. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on television. There's so much information out there. That's why And I get an email from someone that says, why do you talk so much about the coronavirus? This is why, because we want to go to folks who we feel can give the information. So what exactly does this mean for the fight against the coronavirus and the development, development of new vaccines? Well, joining me now is Dr. Mary Beth Sexton. She's an assistant professor of infectious disease at Emory University School of Medicine. Dr. Sexton, thank you for coming back. I appreciate it.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
1: What do you want to say about where people get their information about this? I just want to start with that. If they don't want to listen to me, which is fine, you don't have to. There, are other, Lord knows, there are other folks who are better that you can listen to than me. Uh, what do you want folks to know about looking for the right information, and and then also understanding what the what the consequences are if they're getting this information from a source that's not credible?
4: I think that's what's really important is making sure that your information comes from credible sources. And that's because the internet is great in a lot of ways. It puts information at your fingertips, but it also means anybody can put information out there. And some of what's out there is not correct. And especially when it comes to protecting yourself, your family, your community, with respect to not getting COVID or getting COVID vaccine, you really want to make sure that what you are hearing is correct. And so places like the Centers for Disease Control, the World Health Organization, Most major universities and medical centers Mm -hmm. will all have good websites where they really try to keep their information current. And often they'll try to answer frequently asked questions that they're hearing from patients or the Mm -hmm. community.
1: And not Uncle Bob on Facebook. And I'm sure there's some wonderful Mm -hmm. Uncle Bobs out there. Uh, Here's a question that we often get. And some of these questions uh, we have are some questions I get from listeners. Let's begin with a very basic definition for our listeners. What exactly is a COVID-19 variant?
4: So what this means is that any virus, as it replicates and makes more copies of itself, can get mutations, basically changes in the way the virus looks or behaves. And some of those mutations actually will make the virus less likely to spread or less likely to infect you. Some of them don't change anything at all. And some of them make the virus easier to spread or Mm -hmm. easier to infect somebody. And and this so is, a variant is just a version of the COVID virus that's had one of these mutations or changes.
1: And this is common in viruses, correct?
4: This is very common. But this happens with viruses thousands or millions of times.
1: At this time, and I mentioned the, the, the at first we had heard about this coming from the UK, but do we have a correct number of how many variants have been detected worldwide? And, uh, and I guess the next question is, then you've kind of answered, are all of them equally infectious, the same, with the same characteristics?
4: I don't think we have a complete number because a lot of these changes we would never know about because they don't change anything about how the virus behaves. So we wouldn't have gone looking for them. The three main variants that you'll hear a lot about these days are the one that was first discovered in the UK, one that's been discovered in South Africa, and then one that's been seen in Brazil. And these have some things in common with each other and have now been seen in a lot of other countries, including the United States, now reporting cases of the UK variant, even in Georgia, and then the South African variant's been seen in nearby South Carolina. And the reason those variants are getting press is because that change to the virus that's happened in each of those Mm -hmm. does seem to make it spread more easily. So they will likely cause more cases.
1: That was one question. I actually have a question here from a listener who wants to know, are there different symptoms with the different variants? It's a good question, I think.
4: That's a great question. I think these all seem to cause the same COVID infection. It's just a question of how likely you are to get it. So a lot of the theories are that either these variants increase the amount of virus that somebody who's sick with COVID has in their nose or mouth, So it may be that every time they breathe, speak, talk, they're putting more viral particles out into the environment, just making it more likely that somebody else will get infected. Some of these changes also impact that spike protein. So the red things jutting out of the COVID virus, you'll see if you see a picture of it. And they may make that protein more likely to more easily attach to your cells and get in there. So that just means if you were to inhale COVID virus from somebody else, it might be more likely to get inside your cells and cause an infection with these variants. But the infection that it sets up seems to be very similar. Same symptoms. And for a lot of these, they don't necessarily make it more likely that the virus makes you really sick or that Mm -hmm. it kills you. But it's just that if you have a lot more cases of the virus, you're going to have more people in the hospital and more deaths.
1: That makes sense. And if you are recovering from COVID, you contracted the virus before. Can you also contract one of these new contract, one of these new variants as well? Do we so know that's that?
4: what we are worried about, particularly with the variants in South Africa and Brazil, is that they may be different enough from the original virus that your immune system may not recognize them, even if it would have recognized the original version of COVID, because that's what you had. Mm -hmm. And so we do worry about it maybe being a little more likely that you could get reinfected with one of these. That doesn't seem to necessarily be happening on a huge scale, but that does seem to potentially be happening. And so that's one of the things they're tracking very closely, for example, in Brazil right now, And it's another reason that when the vaccine is available to you, you should get it immediately because the vaccines do seem so far in studies to offer protection against all these variants. It's not all at that 95% level, but even if you get 50, 60, 70% protection, or it makes you less likely to need the hospital or be severely ill, that is absolutely worth it.
1: I want to get your thoughts on this, and this may be more of just a, pr- a procedural question in terms of additional surveillance tracking of the new variant. Is that going to be difficult because we're still obviously tracking the—I don't want to call it the original coronavirus—but what sort of challenges does these will these new variants, you know, cause? Because now you have to have surveillance tracking of, the, of these new variants. There's additional data that you would like to see, or will it be something that you'll see in these different variants?
4: So I think what they will try to do is the health departments, locally, state, and then nationally through the CDC, when they get samples from coronavirus tests, they sequence some percentage of those Mm -hmm. and see if they're getting what looks like the original version or one of these variants. And what they're looking for is, okay, if we randomly pick 100 samples, how many of them come up with a variant? that'll give you an idea of how widespread the variant is in the population. And it's hard because it matters in the sense that we wanna be prepared in the healthcare system, we wanna give people accurate information, but the good news is the same preventive measures that keep you from getting the original version of COVID, Mm -hmm. so not being in large social gatherings, wearing a mask, distancing, all of those things protect against these variants too, And we treat people the same way in the hospital. The vaccines seem to work against all of them. So everything we've been doing for the original, we should continue to do for the variants. They're just a signal to continue those preventive measures and get vaccinated. Because the way that these variants happen Mm -hmm. is the virus has to be spreading to mutate and change. And so if we stop the spread, we won't get more of
1: these. Say it louder for the people in the back. (laughs) The voice you (laughs) I'll get an email about that. The voice you hear is Dr. Mary Beth Sexton, assistant professor of infectious diseases at Emory University School of Medicine. And we're talking about the spread of the new COVID-19 variants, not only here in Georgia, but throughout the world. Let's shift to a moment to how this relates to the new development of the vaccines. And we talked about that the The, the new vaccines could be effective. Uh, could we see some, I guess, more vaccines come online because they will focus on the new variants or Would that just take even longer?
4: So I think right now the real push is to get as many vaccines produced and distributed and into people's arms as we possibly can, because we know these are very effective. They look just as effective against that UK variant. They may be a little less effective against the South African variant, but they still work. And so that's really important. In the background, I think the companies that have made these vaccines are preparing for what they would need to do to adjust the vaccine to cover a variant if we ever got one that wasn't covered well by the vaccines. So that is the nice thing about this vaccine technology, is it would be fairly easy to make that adjustment down the line. But right now, getting the current vaccine to as many people as possible is our friend in stopping this.
1: And here's a question from a listener, and they wanted to know, vaccine is great, but what about treatments, what do we know about treating the virus?
4: So we have learned a lot and there's still a lot more to learn because we are still within this first year of really addressing this. So in some ways it's remarkable how far we've come to have an effective vaccine. In terms of treatment, a lot of the treatment is supportive care. Mm-hmm. So it's really good care in a hospital, really good management if somebody needs a breathing tube in of how you manage that. Um, And so that's one of the main reasons to try to limit the spread is that we know that with really good supportive care, we can save a lot of people, even people who need to be in an intensive care unit. Mm -hmm. But if the hospitals get overwhelmed by patients, being able to provide that kind of really detail-oriented, time-consuming personal care gets hard, and that's when you see the death rate go up there are some medications that we give in the hospital we know that steroids in some cases help with the potential for lung damage there's an antiviral remdesivir that gets used in a lot of hospitalized patients who need oxygen that seems to shorten their hospital stay and then there are other medications being tested in clinical trials that are out there there are also these monoclonal antibodies Mm -hmm. so basically antibodies directed at the COVID virus that you give people, uh, usually people who are outpatients. So people Mm -hmm. who haven't gotten that sick yet to try to prevent them from getting sick enough to need the hospital. And there are two out there available under emergency use authorizations from the FDA. Because these are experimental treatments, they recommend only giving them to people who are at the highest risk to Mm. decompensate and need the hospital or an intensive care unit. So they're focused on people who are over 65, people who are between 55 and 64 have got heart disease or lung disease, and then people of any age who've got diabetes, kidney disease, morbid obesity, or certain mm-hmm. kinds of immune compromise. And, and those seem to make people less likely to need to go to the emergency mm-hmm. room or get admitted to the hospital.
1: Well, let me ask you this. What do you make of the double mask or double masking as now we're, we're hearing? And people are saying, well, is it, do we know that that's effective? you know, one mask, two mask?
4: So I think this is a really interesting question where the focus on masking and mask quality is good. I think we can get ourselves down the wrong pathway, getting very focused on one versus two. Mm-hmm. The idea here is that you really want a mask that's good quality and that fits you well. So something that's at least several layers of fabric that covers your mouth and your nose, and that doesn't have big gaps on the top, the bottom or the sides and for people in the community who are wearing a really thin cloth mask it's possible that if you have two on that that increases the thickness such that you have a better quality mask Mm -hmm. or that if your mask has gaps on the side or the top that if you put a cloth mask over that it may seal those gaps and make it fit better so the idea behind double masking is really just ensuring the quality and the fit of your mask if you need two masks to do that and you can do that comfortably go for it, it Mm -hmm. may help. But if that actually makes your mask fit worse, makes you feel like you're having trouble breathing, maybe so you're less likely to wear it, or if that makes you have your hands on your face adjusting your mask, then that's probably counterproductive and you should just focus on the one. So this is really all about wear something that you are going to wear Mm -hmm. that covers your nose (laughs) and your mouth, that's good quality and that fits you well. Whether that's one or two is just based on you personally usually.
1: And when in doubt, a motorcycle helmet maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that came from a listener. Uh, before we wrap up, I want you to tell me what what are you not hearing that you would want to hear more in terms of messaging to the community and to folks, where it's from people like me. Or you know, we give these updates every day. We think it's important. Uh, many folks like them. Some folks are tired of hearing me, but you know, we feel it's important because we. We want folks to be alive. But what are you not hearing that you want to hear more of in terms of messaging or anything as it relates to all of this?
4: So I think when it comes to this debate about masks, I think that we do get a lot of focus on this idea of, oh, is it supposed to be two? Is it supposed to be one? I think really keeping the focus on that idea of one, you know, or if it's two for you, that's fine. But making sure that your mask fits you well, is high quality, and that you wear it. And I think we can get very focused on some of these nitty-gritty details where the real idea, the overarching focus is just wear a mask because it protects you, it protects the people around you, and it hopefully would stop the spread of this and help us to not have these variants circulating. I think that's the other thing, too, as there's this focus on the variants and all of this concern about um, are they more, you know, they are more contagious. Are they more deadly? Are they really protected by the vaccine? But we could stop the spread of them if we stop the spread of the virus in general. Mm-hmm. So just that ongoing focus on prevention measures while we wait for more widespread vaccine availability is really helpful.
1: And for you personally, and maybe professionally, as an assistant professor of infectious diseases, uh, you, I, I think you're a scientist, personally speaking, what has been, I guess, complexing or interesting about all of this to you?
4: So I think that in some ways, what I think is remarkable is what I mentioned that we've gone from the first discovery that there was a new virus just a little over a year ago. And we've had both the tragedy of having that spread globally, Mm -hmm. which really highlights for us that in this world where we have so much interstate international travel, so much interconnectedness, that things like this in the future will move fast and that we need to be prepared and that we need increasing programs for surveillance and preparedness worldwide. But we've also seen that we can go from the discovery of a new virus to an understanding of how it spreads and what the prevention measures should be to some treatments that are now out there and helping and to effective vaccines in a year. And that's a real triumph for the scientific community in the face of all of this tragedy. So I think there's been good news and bad news with
1: this. And a global effort that it's taking. So many folks have been working so hard on all of this, including our good friends over at Emory. Dr. Mary Beth Sexton, Assistant Professor of Infectious Disease at Emory University School of Medicine. And we're talking about the spread. We were talking about the spread of the new COVID-19 variants in Georgia and worldwide. And she just gave me some good, as my grandfathers say, some good old common sense. Thank you so much.
0: And
1: Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. Atlanta Police Chief Rodney Bryant has been with the department since 1988. We talked about that in the first part of our conversation yesterday. Now, last summer, as we all know, in the midst of a pandemic which continues and calls for racial justice and police reform, that also continues. So in part two of our conversation with Chief Bryant, we began with the focus on policing in black communities. Where are you now, Chief, in terms of trying to bridge that gap between the police department, APD, and its citizens? Also, at the time of this broadcast, we know that the two officers have been reinstated who were involved with the two AUC students from last summer. Again, that played out uh, in video and on television. When something like that happens, and then you can understand the community saying, well, what's that about?
2: What we what we have to do, Rose, is continue to work with the community that we serve,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, recognizing that the profession as a whole has to do better and we will continue to strengthen our relationship, continue to have strong conversations with our community. Um, and I think that's what will help us move forward. And so that's what I'm doing currently. Um, this department continues to uh, strengthen the relationship with the citizens that we have, um, we are responsible for their safety.
1: What zone were you first assigned to, Chief?
2: Uh, my first zone was Zone Three, Southwest zone Southeast Atlanta,
1: and that was a community you were familiar with. And when you think about now, all the attention being paid to the crimes up in Buckhead, and there and have been some, and, and, and tragically there have been murders. Um, But when you hear that now all of a sudden there is this added attention to crime in our city, and let's be really clear, Atlanta has been through crime spikes before. Um, You don't want crime taking place anywhere. I know that. Uh, But how do you also, how are you maneuvering through all of that? Because there are these added cries to the, the crime spike. You had over 150 homicides last year. And I know that in zone three and other zones, they experience crime at a higher rate all the time than Buckhead. Not to pick on Beck Buckhead. Somebody will send me an email, trust me, but that's okay. But there's crime throughout the city. And so now you have this added attention to a particular part of the city. You know, what's your response to that?
2: Listen, um, as you started, I, out correctly saying that I don't want crime, I don't want an incident to happen anywhere in this city. Mm -hmm. The thing is, there are certain times that certain communities are more vocal than others, Uh, but we work as an agency, as a department, to distribute safety and and public safety throughout this entire city. Um, And so we recognize that there are those that are vocal uh, but I'm looking at, I take that in consideration, but I'm also looking at the crime in its totality. I'm mm-hmm. listening to those that may not have a, strong, a, a higher platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I go to different community m- meetings or, uh, or now uh, join in visually on different community meetings to listen to their concerns as well. Uh, and so that's how we are distributing our police services throughout this city. Uh, But, you know, Rose, one of the things I think that people are really missing Mm -hmm. is the role that this pandemic is really playing on us as a whole. Uh, It's not, I don't think, this is not just an Atlanta police, a city of Atlanta uh, situation. We're seeing this level of crime in almost every major city in our country. Uh, And that's problem that lets you know that there's something else. There's a variable uh, that we aren't measuring uh, that has had an influence on what we're seeing. I'm on calls with different chiefs and major city chiefs on a regular basis. And we are all having the exact same conversation Mm -hmm. as it relates to crime, the violence that we are seeing with these handguns, the street races. All of these, very, the auto thefts, we're having the exact same conversation. So this pandemic has played a significant role. I, I think that his, historians will look back on it and maybe they'll be able to put it together. Right now, uh, my job is to take an action and address it based on the things that I have uh, available to me now. And what that requires is us to make adjustment almost every day to come up with um, plans and strategies to address what we are seeing. And I'm doing that, not just internally, but reaching out to my other federal state and local partners to come up with a better plan, a better strategy, and then incorporating the the community itself to see what ideas they may have so that we can get to a much better place.
1: And finally, Chief, when I asked you earlier about the help you needed in partnerships And recently I had a conversation with Atlanta City Councilman Antonio Brown. And, of course, this resolution was passed unanimously by the council in terms of creating a a Department of Public Safety and Wellness. Now, this will not alone curb the crime rate, but it could help in terms of fielding non-emergency calls that your officers may not have to deal with. Do you support
2: that? Rose, I support evaluating anything that could get us into a better space. Um, And but I think that you have to take a look at and see what it actually can do Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Uh, and anything that can move us forward. uh, We should take a look at it and, and make the determination if we should incorporate it.
1: Do you worry then, Chief, about officer morale and then also recruitment and not just recruitment, but retainment because of all this that's been taking place?
2: absolutely again that's one of the, the major topics that we are having with other major city chiefs is our space around the morale and retention of police officers uh, it's no secret that throughout the summer at the height of the civil unrest we took a significant hit at the city of atlanta mm-hmm. police department those numbers have saved off some so we're pro- we're mostly back at where we would have been uh, as it relates to retention Our recruitment efforts um, are actually a little bit better than some. Uh, We have more people in the pipeline wanting to be Atlanta police officers today than we did last year at this time. Uh, And so I'm I'm very optimistic about that. Uh, We will continue to expand upon our recruitment going forward. Um, But as it relates to the morale, again, as, as, as much as it I have to work at building trust and strength inside the community. I have to do that internally mm-hmm. as well to make sure that the officers uh that 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 are hired on that have come on to to protect the city are uh comfortable in doing so. And so we have to strengthen that morale. And again, that that is done to also through partnership and people coming up with great ideas on how do you help uh uh, protect your officers and, and encourage them to do a great job. And we're we're getting better. I, I will, you know, I have I meet with officers almost every day, and and have one-on-one conversation and sometimes group conversation. And what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing is we're we're getting better. Um, it, it's going to take time. Uh, this happening it won't happen overnight, but we're getting we're slowly but surely getting better. But I think it's important that, that your listeners understand that the officers never stopped working. They never stopped um, working uh, here in the city of Atlanta. Did they go through some issues? Absolutely. Uh, but, but for the most part, uh, officers showed up for work every day and continued to do what they were um, hired on to do.
1: And then finally, Chief, if there is an officer or officers who violate their duties of what they're supposed to do in the community... You take responsibility for that as well.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. You're not. A,
1: if you have to recommend firing an officer,
2: Rose. Again, one of the things uh, since I've sat behind this desk, um, that hadn't stopped. Uh, when we have officers are in violations, it won't get as much note, note, uh, notoriety, and information uh, as some. But we have to terminate officers that are in violation of our policies. Uh, and I don't hesitate about doing it um, because I we have a responsibility. And if we can't trust what the citizens aren't trusting us, uh, then we can't do our job. And so I I don't have any issues with us having to evaluate an officer to make sure that he's in alignment with our policies. And if he's outside, we address it accordingly
1: atlanta police chief rodney bryant thank you so much for taking the time i really appreciate it thank you chief
2: thank you so much appreciate it yeah,
1: good conversation good conversation there and you can hear part one of the conversation with apd interim chief rodney bryant it's online at wabe.org slash closer look coming up next DeKalb county school superintendent Cheryl watson harris joins me she'll talk about how the district is responding to the COVID 19 pandemic And also, I'll share concerns from parents and educators that we've received right here on the program. That's coming up next. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. DeKalb County edu- educators returned to the classroom this week. Now, the teachers may be there, but the students, well, they still continue to learn virtually or online, as they say. Well, because of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, each school district approach to the in-class instruction or virtual. is different throughout all of this. We heard from you, the listeners. Y'all sent me emails that there was confusion, so we reached back out to all the area school districts, APS, DeCab, Cobb, Gwinnett, Fulton, Clayton, Marietta, and our series began with the Atlanta Public School Superintendent, Dr. Lisa Herring, who joined the program yesterday. And now we continue with DeKalb County School Superintendent, Cheryl Watson-Harris, who joins me. Thank you so much for taking the time, as always. I really appreciate it. I know you're coming from one meeting and jumping on this, so I really appreciate it. But more importantly, the community and your DeKalb <laughs> County Schools community, they, they really appreciate it, so thank you.
3: Thank you. And I always appreciate you giving us this opportunity to reach our audience and make sure that they're in the know and um, that we're maintaining open communication. So well, I appreciate you.
1: Well, let's talk about in the you know, because I have emails here from <laughs> concerned parents and, and mm-hmm. you know, teachers. And let's get some clarity right now in terms of mm-hmm. what's happening uh, this week. Educators are in the classroom for all the grades or some break it down.
3: Yes, all of our teachers uh, returned yesterday, uh, uh, and, and they were back in the buildings. So of naturally, we have some that uh, were not there for various uh, reasons, uh, but we had. Uh, The larger majority of our teachers report yesterday, it was a beautiful tone um, in our buildings. I visited many buildings. Uh, Many teachers were very excited to be back uh, in the school buildings. Uh, And our principals did a phenomenal, phenomenal job uh, making sure that everyone was comfortable, that they had what they needed, and that they were given the space to just get used to being back in the building, uh, many of them the first time since mid-March last Mm -hmm. spring.
1: For clarity, mm-hmm. educators, staff, is it a mandate that they return to the school buildings unless they have a, 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 an approval from the district? And if so, what's the criteria for that for that approval to be met?
3: Um, thank you for the, the question. Yes, it is a mandate. Uh, we, we returned to our physical working spaces yesterday. Our folks were given notice on January 4th. We were consistent with that messaging that our staff would be returning on February 3rd. Uh, Naturally, uh, there are staff members who have underlining conditions, um, who have met the criteria to apply for an ADA accommodation. um, And we've been working to get all of those approvals out um, and being in communication with our staff about the status of their ADA accommodation um, from our human resources department.
1: Now, we know that folks are wearing masks and y'all are practicing social distancing. I want to talk about the buildings. Did the Mm -hmm. district have to purchase any new type of ventilation equipment? Was there anything, any systems, exhaust systems or what have you, that you all know you've had to put into these buildings? How safe are these buildings in terms of air, air filtration and all that?
3: Thank you for that question, um, because that's been on top of mind for a lot of people. Um, We uh, did a lot of work since uh, the summer to get the buildings ready. You know, because we chatted before, um, when we uh, made the decision to return on January 4th, when I walked through some of the buildings, um, there were some things that concerned me. Mm -hmm. Um, And we doubled down with our operations team to get our buildings ready um, to ensure that people were walking into a safe space uh, yesterday. um, on February 3rd. Uh, Some of the things that we did uh, where we had concerns about the air quality, we did air quality studies. Um, And in most cases, what we found is that the air quality in the buildings was even better than outside in terms of allergens, et cetera. So these are things that we have not taken lightly. We have made sure where there were concerns um, with ventilation that we've done those certified studies to be able to produce to our teachers and to our stakeholders that the air quality was was safe within the buildings. And this is Um,
1: throughout all the buildings where the teachers are now. You feel confident in that?
3: Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes, That we have always said that the safety of our students and our staff is our number one priority. Um, It's important that our stakeholders remember that we have been one of the most conservative school districts in terms of our approach to bringing our staff back. We had promised that we would be guided by the science. The message from the CDC is that schools should reopen and that the data that they've collected over these last few months is that uh, school districts have not shown to contribute in any meaningful way to the increase in community spread. And if we implement the mitigation strategies, that we can actually contribute to a decline. And that is exactly where we are as a school district now. The science is on our side. Um, that we are making the right decisions. We have done the work to prepare ourselves to make sure that the buildings are ready, that that we have the necessary PPE um, and we feel confident. And that is why we've made the decision now to say, hey, guess what, we're ready, let's go back. Now, are we ready in terms of emotions? Are we ready in terms of uh, some of the fear we recognize that that's real. And so we, uh, again, our, our principals did a remarkable job yesterday meeting teachers where they were and ensuring that they were providing the right support and communication to make our teachers feel comfortable with this first step.
1: Kujer, how are you assessing this communication with the teachers? I did hear uh, that for some, with the, as it relates to the, the hardship waivers, some mm-hmm. teachers say they haven't been able to get a response to their requests so, I want to yeah. give you an opportunity to, if there is a delay, and have you all responded to all of the hardship waivers to your knowledge?
3: Thank you again. You're getting all the right questions. That's all the what right I do. <laughs> yeah, I know that's your job, and you are good at it, okay? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, okay, so one, we don't have a hardship waiver anymore. That was a one time, Really, Uh, The hardship waiver. That's what we provided to our staff. We worked with our legal counsel to provide that hardship waiver, which was not, there wasn't an application process. Anyone who said, I need more time, applied for that hardship waiver, and we Mm -hmm. gave them that additional 30 days, um, which brought us to February 3rd. Okay. The ADA accommodations, absolutely. We would be uh, not telling the truth if we said that we weren't behind in um, approving all of the ADA accommodations. That is true. However, we have uh, sent out multiple communications, news flashes, et cetera, to say, if you're waiting on an ADA accommodation, please reach out to your principals. Our principals have been working with staff to determine, you know, if if a a staff member is ill Mm -hmm. and they're waiting on their accommodation, we're not expecting them to come back into the building and put themselves in an unsafe way, Mm. Um, um, you know, but we, we have to look, we have to prioritize the ADA accommodation request and work with each staff member to make sure that we're not putting them in harm's way um, if their uh, ADA accommodation um, is is Mm -hmm. in in process. We we have a bottleneck right now of the number of requests that have come in. My uh, HR team is working around the clock, but any teacher that feels that they have not received a response should reach out to their principal Mm -hmm. to their regional superintendent, or to our HR department. Every teacher has an HR specialist that's assigned to their region. Um, And we, we most certainly have been communicating that information.
1: And as you know, throughout all of this, DeKalb County has consistently remained in the top five in this state of confirmed cases, hospitalizations, and even deaths, are you also looking at that? You said you're following the science and we know about the reports as it relates to the risk involved with bringing kids and educators back into the school. But also you have to look at the county as a whole, too. Mm-hmm. So uh, you all took that in consideration with this? Yes, we can. Go yes.
3: Uh, yes, ma'am. We, we continue to work with our um, COVID-19 task force. We continue to work with our medical advisory committee. Um, Right now, if you were to come, and we've hosted many day in the life opportunities, we have Mm -hmm. one coming up on February 10th, um, where we're inviting many leaders throughout our community to come to see the mitigation strategies in in practice. Our teachers, when they arrive to their building, most don't even have to sign into the uh, office. Mm -hmm. There's an electronic way, uh, whether it be a QR code or a Google Doc, where teachers sign in that they're in the building. They can go right directly to their classrooms. There's no reason for them to be congregating, to be in close proximity with anyone else. This was our first step to getting people back in the building. Now, did I see a lot of people congregating yesterday or, you know, very happy to see their colleagues and their friends? Um, And we just want to make people uh, know that we have to wave those bows, that we're not making any... Uh, personal or physical contact but that uh, you know right now it it is safe to go Mm -hmm. to the building and follow the mitigation strategies as we as we've laid out um, and for folks to be in the building and teach from the building.
1: Here's a question from a listener what sense does it make to have the teachers in the schools in the classrooms and the kids online? I'm just reading what the person wrote so
3: don't, yeah, no, and the, you know, it's a it, 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 it it's all a process, right? We can't get the children back in school until we get the teachers back in school. Mm-hmm. And so this was step 1. Okay, and and I'm very proud of us, which is the way uh, yesterday went down and and today as well. We have to get the teachers back. We have to make sure that the teachers become comfortable with the technologies. Uh, Again, our parents will have the choice of whether they return face to face or stay virtual for the remainder of the year. Mm -hmm. So in many cases, the teachers will be doing concurrent instruction. This is brand new. We have to train people we have to make sure that it all works the way that we're envisioning so Mm -hmm. we couldn't just bring the teachers back and then automatically bring the students back but we do have a board meeting on monday Mm -hmm. and um to your question about uh communication uh you know we have a new cadence after board meeting that we, the, several days later, we host a, a parent town hall that has already been posted to the website. Mm-hmm. And we, pr- we promised our parents we would give them at least two weeks notice before the return of the students. Um, and these are the things that we're tracking towards right now.
1: In terms of if a student or an educator contracts the virus, where do you all get that information from? Are you asking the community. I mean, folks may say, "Well, I know of this student or this household had it," but how are you all getting this information?
3: Uh, we receive the information from from the person themselves. Okay, um, they do share that information with us. We we've been over communicating the importance of that, um, and then we follow the guidance from the uh, Decab Health uh, Board of Health. Um, we report all of the cases to the Board of Health, and we follow their guidance on next steps in terms of notification of people who may have come in contact with this person um, and what the uh, process should be for uh, it, cleaning, sanitizing that mm-hmm. specific area where um, that person may have been. I know that we've had questions from uh, constituents, stakeholders, community leaders about posting the numbers. Yeah. Uh, we, we are beginning to do that. You mm-hmm. can find the numbers on the website. Um, We had not been doing that previously because we were not in the physical space. That was the only reason. But we're back and we will be posting those numbers, Uh, you know. Yes.
1: Speaking of back, do you have a timeline that you want to work with? Are students going to remain virtual for the rest of this school year or are you going to try to do it in phases, much like kind of what APS is doing, not to bring them Mm -hmm. into it, but? You know, what's next?
3: No, no. And we all work together. We share best practices and ideas. Um, Our plan has been consistent, uh, which is a phase in program. Um, We are waiting. We're going slow to go fast. Right. So we have our teachers back. That was step one. Yesterday we identified some technology concerns that we have to get up and running. So um, again, we have a board meeting on Monday. Uh, we will discuss uh, where we are, and then we will have a, a parent town hall, as we've had. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we will notify our parents of um, a potential return date. Yes, we are aiming to get our children back in school. Uh, we we want that option available for families um, who would like a return to face-to-face option.
1: And Superintendent Harris, as it relates to that dashboard, which will have the number of confirmed cases When will that be? Is it up now? I want to get some clarity here because I wasn't quite. Is that dashboard live or you all are working on it?
3: We're working on it. If it's not up by the end of today, it'll be up uh, by tomorrow. Um, I I can't say I've been to meetings all day. I don't know if they got the numbers up. but We we had a meeting about it last evening. Um, Most certainly that data will be available uh, tomorrow if it isn't today.
1: And this data will include the number of from. District employees, to educators, to students. Would you break it down that way, or you just have a yeah. one number?
3: No, no, no. We don't plan to have one number. We mm-hmm. have. We plan to have it broken down by region, or uh, central offices, um, so that folks can kind of get a sense of trends um, and and the numbers. The, the goal is to be transparent. The goal is, you know, we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it does, we, we want to make sure everybody's working with the right information. Many of our parents have said that they, um, they, they haven't made a decision as to whether or not their mm-hmm. child will return because they didn't feel they had adequate information. Um, and that's why we brought make, you on the
1: program because they told yes, us the same
3: I, thing. I, well, I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, but we've been and, and maybe I need to, you know, make sure I come on. I have a standing check in with you. But we get the information out. We have the videos out. We have... Um, the town halls, we have the website, we have my weekly newsletter, we're trying everything but the videos people responded very well to we did videos of what it looks like in the building, what to expect. Um, and we will continue to follow that up parents said they wanted the numbers so we'll do that any information that is being requested we're putting it into action. And responding to our constituents. We want them to have as much information mm-hmm. as they need to make the decision that's best for their families.
1: And finally, as it relates to the educators, because they are there in the buildings, in terms of safety for them, do they have their own, each educator, each staff member have a dedicated space for themselves if they're not in the classroom, if they have to leave a classroom and let another educator come in? Do they, mm-hmm. are educators, staff sharing spaces at all? Do you know if that's yes. an issue?
3: And here I just want to give a, a huge shout out to our principals, mm-hmm. um, you know we've talked a lot about our students our, our, our staff our meeting our teachers and our other staff members our principals have been absolutely amazing, um, and really thought so. Uh, respectfully about how to create spaces for their staff to feel safe. Um, we, uh, in some schools, there are teachers who share a room, especially our um, exceptional education teachers, where you might have one teacher and three paras um, for some of our uh, fragile students. Teach, uh, principals have made uh, revisions to the schedule, so they have fewer people in each classroom. Does or, that concern you? Is that you know? So I'll, I visited a classroom yesterday. There were four mm-hmm. adults in the building. Um, they had they had on their own it, with their principals sectioned off the classroom. So they each had um, a space in the classroom and they were able to socially distance. Okay. Um, they felt comfortable. I visited another classroom where the staff um, didn't feel as comfortable and the, te- the principal made uh, an adjustment to move two people to another room, so these are the kind of on-site case-by-case uh, situations. Um, I'm not sure if you've, you know, invited or had a chance to speak to teachers other than the ones who maybe who have written in, uh, because I, what I saw yesterday and what I heard was a um, a moment of ex-hot exhale mm-hmm. for a lot of teachers who were just nervous and didn't know what to expect and then to see the level of preparation and preparedness from uh, their principals. But for parents, they should look out. Principals are, are inviting parents in to do day in the lives. They're doing um, Facebook Live, you know, where they're walking through the building so they can actually see. Um, we, would, we invited our teachers back, mm-hmm. uh, made this mandatory because we were ready. All and
1: right. this
3: was our first step in getting our kids back
1: thank you so much dr Cheryl Watson Harris superintendent of DeKalb County Schools thank you for taking the time special thanks to your educators and everyone out there support staff everybody bus drivers everybody because yes. <laughs> this is area
3: <laughs> workers yeah a- a-
1: everybody and uh, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the program our listeners really appreciate it thank you so much
3: always thank you so much have a good day
1: you too now and that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash closerlook. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth,
3: long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
2: The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raúl Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform.
1: W-A-B-E.